0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Najus Duma. Welcome everyone to another episode of Lung Cancer Concert, and your host, Dr. Najus Duma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Thoracic Oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. And today we have a very special guest. We're joined by Dr. Balash Halmus, Professor of Oncology and Chief Thoracic Head and Neck Oncology at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein, College of Medicine in New York. Balash, thank you for joining me today for a conversation about your career, about several stories that I can't wait to hear from you, and particularly your work in EGFR, Mutant, No Small Cell Lung Cancer. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much uh, for the invite. Now, just uh, I look forward to our chat.
0: And I'm also looking forward to meeting you in person. I, I think we haven't met in person yet.
1: Well, you know, after this pandemic season, hopefully we'll be partying along as a lung cancer community uh, soon enough.
0: I hope so. I still I still do have hopes for ESMO and Paris. So I hope... I hope to keep my hopes alive. Let's see. Sounds good. So, but well, let's get started. So, can you please share with us how do you find your way to lung cancer, clinically and in your research?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't necessarily set on um, lung cancer. You know, as so I entered my HeMonk fellowship, I, I knew I, I wanted to do Hemang uh, for the reason that I have no manual skills and are. Uh, Specialty doesn't require that, as you know. At the same time, I wanted to take care of patients with significant illnesses, where the clinician has a real value in terms of, you know, managing patients and managing them, managing them long term, being part of kind of, you know, the team approach to help patients from diagnosis to, you know, hopefully cure, but you know, sometimes not cure, but uh, through some difficult decisions uh, all the way to a patient's passing. So I wanted to be in a difficult field. And also filled with, you know, great scientific uh, opportunities and certainly oncology opened that up. And as I entered my Hemong fellowship from there on, it was, you know, meeting the right personalities, right mentors, you know, picking a research project that was uh, exciting. And I had this perfect mix between a lab mentor, Dan Tenen, and a clinical mentor, Dan Carp, and a research project that ultimately turned out to be focused on lung cancer. And from there on, uh, my career has centered around it. And I have certainly been very fortunate to be a witness and a bit of a participant in some of, you know, the significant discoveries that we've all uh, so much enjoyed in terms of improving cancer care.
0: Hearing about your story and, you know, my personal story, I always think that your way to lung cancer includes several universal events that take place. You know, that patient that changed your life, that mentor that guides you, and many things happen all together to guide us to a career in lung cancer research. will you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, you know, we're set in terms of where we'll go in our career, you know, as we enter medical school. And, you know, we're, we're shaped, you know, with our experiences all along and opportunities as well. And a little bit of flexibility also helps because not always is, is uh, the perfect situation at hand. So all of those come together and hopefully will help us, you know, find the right niche. I've uh, certainly enjoyed, you know, my 20 years in medical oncology so far, and I look forward for the next uh, 50.
0: I love that. And you have experience as a lab-based researcher and also as a clinical researcher. Can you tell us a little bit, how was that transition from the lab to a little bit more clinical research?
1: Yeah, very good question, because the transition really hasn't hasn't taken place yet. I mean, as I entered medical school, I, I've, I've definitely felt that being with patients was very important, you know, throughout my career, and I've never, I've never spent a moment, in a way, uh, not being part of patient care. But also just excited about the science, you know, the scientific approach and scientific discoveries. Uh, so ever since medical school, I've been, you know, participating and running, you know, translational research projects while being, a, you know, a, a solid clinician and a clinical researcher as well. And, as you can imagine, this is not an easy career path, especially nowadays, you know with grant funding as it is. So it had many ups and downs and twists and turns. But what has been studied throughout is is just being passionate about sort of all elements of of academic life and being a clinical oncologist, and that is taking care of patients, advancing research, whether that's clinical or translational. And you know a lot of fun working with the trainees and mentoring, uh, which I've done you know more and more as I got. A little bit more senior, and you know, um, have have more and more white hair with time. So I'm I'm still actually a part-time you know lab researcher, although you know my main focus is in the clinic. And after you know a little bit of a love, we've actually just submitted a very uh, nice paper, in at least my view, on on, on some uh, interesting insights in terms of metaxone for 14 positive lung cancer. So I really enjoy this this you know living in in, in the middle of things in a way. And uh, not being super focused, but being able to participate in the full conversation from clinic to the lab.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, my grandfather was at OBGYN for decades, and he always said that you cannot buy wisdom and wisdom doesn't come and in Joe Harrison's uh, internal medicine books. So we would love to hear, how was it treating lung cancer prior to targeted therapy, Balash?
1: Well, I guess, I guess a couple of things. You know, when I entered this field, this was just about you know 20 years ago. A little bit more uh, managing lung cancer from a certain angle was was really dismal. You know, abysmal in terms of outcomes. You know, our patients almost always presented with late stage disease. Lung cancer screening didn't exist at the time. And as you know, if you wait for patients to present with symptoms, by that time usually they have stage three, but many times stage four disease. And Stage four disease in uh, the 1990s was basically just a relentless march towards death, with zero percent, long-term you know, survivorship. And even in stage three disease, you know the big discovery of chemotherapy adding to the benefit of radiation raised the overall survival rate at five years, you know, maybe to 10 percent. So really, really a terrible uh, landscape at that time, but in a way also very simplistic you know, practice. It was carbotaxel and carbotaxel and carbotaxel. So for somebody who wanted to spend time in the lab like myself, uh, on a certain level, it didn't require a whole lot of, you know, brain power, you know, to figure out what to do in clinic because you had one regimen to use. So in a way, it was perfect to stay focused in the lab, but I'm just so glad that we drastically changed that paradigm uh, by today. And, you know, from from the losers of medical oncology, I think thoracic oncology has become the leader of, of medical oncologist to where we stand today.
0: And I we agree with that. <laughs> and as you know, EGFR mutant or the EGFR development of targeted therapies change how you know non-small cell lung cancer is seen now. Like I teach our fellows that lung cancer is not one disease. It's just many subtypes of diseases. So you were there when all of this happened. How these you know, the whole development of EGFR-directed therapy changed the feel?
1: You know, just just dramatically. And it was really, really almost an overnight transformation. Uh, when I was a fellow, we were eagerly kind of watching what was happening with, you know, lymphomas, with rituximab, and, you know, in breast cancer, with ERB-2 suddenly popping up. And then, you know, chronic mild leukemia with the discovery of you know of course BCR of course BCR able and the use of imatinib, but, but in lung cancer none of that you know was 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 ready in a way at least it didn't seem so you know we clustered patients into small cell versus non-small cell lung cancer and despite the fact that we knew that non-small cell lung cancer had different types really nobody cared we didn't push the pathologist to tell us even if it was squamous or non-squamous because the treatment was the same and the outcome was the same. Um, And then suddenly with the introduction of EGFR inhibitors and the recognition that some of our patients are behaving differently than others, and then really back-to-back papers in the spring of 2004, suddenly uh, yielding the major discovery that the responsiveness of these tumors was based on the molecular underpinnings of the cancer. Lung cancers are not, not the same disease. The fact that a lung cancer harbors an EGFR mutation uh, changes the behavior of that lung cancer responsiveness drastically from a 2% response rate in a wild-type patient to 780% in a mutated patient. And that really changed the whole paradigm. You know, we suddenly realized that we had to dig, you know, further and further. Uh, we needed to turn stones to make sure that you know we uncover all the patients who can benefit from an EGFR inhibitor. The diagnostics had to change, all the testing platforms, treatment paradigms, and this pushed research you know, more you know, than before. And I think most importantly, it changed the mindset. It changed the mindset that you know, things are not that dismal and longer as long as as long as you uh, you know do turn the stones the right way for your patient and you dig dig hard enough to find the appropriate matching treatment. And at that time it was about 10% of the patients, but it gave us hope, right? Even if it's 10%, if there's a little bit of hope, you know, that just opens new avenues that there could be more. So it, it was really just a dramatic transformational event for the entire field in the spring of 2004 between the two discoveries between the MGH and the Dana-Farber groups, and I still look back at that as one of the major milestones in, in, in molecular medicine.
0: And, and I love that you still remember the year and the season. I think that we go to history.
1: And I don't remember the day of the week. I'm sorry about that. But everything <laughs> else, I, I think I've got it You know, pretty, pretty correct.
0: <laughs> Let's just say it was a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's, we still encounter many challenges with biomarker testing. We have more and more testing to do, more targets. But how was it, you know, implementing EGFR testing back then?
1: Well, the technology at that time, you know, wasn't too difficult because it it really just required DNA sequencing. Uh, So you just had to figure out how to implement it for each pathology lab. You know, of course, you know, many times it was a send out, but DNA sequencing by that time wasn't that difficult. What was a problem is that we took a couple of missteps early on. There was some information that is not the mutational status but you know amplification through fish you know that makes the difference and that slowed the field down in terms of just the full acceptance of uh, molecular mutational testing being absolutely key these missteps you know were corrected you know soon enough but by the time we corrected them we realized that egfr is not the only story fortunately very soon afterwards, uh, the first case with an elk fusion positive lung cancer was recognized in Japan, opening up now, you know, second chapter in, in molecular oncology and lung cancer management. And then came Ross and then BRAF, et cetera, et cetera, and the kitchen sink in a way. Eesh. And then suddenly the technology that we had was no longer tenable. But, you know, uh, science has advanced. Uh, you know, and and this year with the pandemic has shown us the power of of of. Uh, you know, medicine and science, NGS technology you know, became available and by now it's DNA or RNA, all exome, all genome in a way, you know the sky is, is, is available for us to, to just just use. And then suddenly ctDNA came to the forefront as well as, as another way of, of expediting and facilitating molecular testing. So it's been, it's been positive story after positive story from, from my angle. And, you know, by now we have to test for eight, you know, genes at least, but maybe that's nine or 10 dependent on how we count. And, um, you know, it, it's making a huge difference in our patients' lives, you know, with, with advanced lung cancer. And as we just learned this year, maybe in earlier stages as well with the results of the ADORA study, which again is a huge, huge milestone forward in terms of now, not just, you know, taking care of uh, metastatic lung cancer patients in a personalized way, but moving that into earlier stage disease settings as well.
0: And, and I have seen, you know, through our social media interactions that you're a very big advocate for biomarker testing. And I really appreciate you put, you know, cases, scenarios in which biomarker testing is so important. And it brings a perspective of the everyday importance of doing, you know, NGS and our patients. And I really like to follow your stories. And some of my fellows have seen them and they're like, yes, Dr. Halmos posted this. And this is such a good example. So I think everybody who's listening should be checking you out on social media.
1: We learn from, from each other so much. So I, I really appreciate that input. But believe me, uh, the education is twofold.
0: <laughs> so I think I really would like, you know, just to ask you to briefly remind the audience about T790M mutation, what it is, so we can get a little bit in the story of your involvement with it.
1: Sure. Uh, so you know, going back to that Wednesday, as you mentioned, in April of 2004. So I was a very junior faculty at that time. And I mentioned how important it is to have, you know, the right people around you, but also be flexible and, and use your opportunities. So a few months beforehand, my boss said, I, I, I have to send you Abbalaj to this community practice, you know, 15 miles from Boston, nobody else can do it. Can you do it for us? and I was very annoyed, but how can I say no? So I went you know, to, to run this general oncology practice off of, uh, you know, Route uh, you know, 95 in Neshoba in Massachusetts. And there was a patient uh, who had uh, very advanced lung cancer, seemed to be heading towards hospice, but we were able to enroll him into this compassionate use protocol for uh, an EGFR tki and had just a dramatic improvement in his illness. So, you know, fast forward a year or so in April of 2004, I I learned about this EGFR story. I almost was able to participate in the first discovery, but I kind of missed the beat and I was really annoyed, you know, that this major discovery kind of I, I missed. And then this particular patient in my own clinic started progressing. And knowing the chronic mild leukemia literature, I sort of knew that there's a molecular reason for the patient's response to the EGFR TKI There could be a molecular reason for the cancer to progress on the same uh, targeted agent as we learned from CML patients on Imatinib. And uh, this patient was gracious enough you know, from this community practice to come into our main hospital and get a second biopsy. And we sequenced the second biopsy in our you know, lab in Dan Tennant's lab. And I remember the day when we were looking at the sequencing uh, uh, data, and we saw this little blip—a single base pair change in the egf sequence uh, as compared to the patient's baseline. And I said, "Wow, this this might just be it." But I had no idea what that particular base pair would do. So we went over to a different building, found you know a couple of. Uh, Funky um, structural chemists, and they just plugged the sequence into their computer, and and you know there we could just see it was the same particular amino acid in the in the ATP binding domain as one of the most common mutations in CML on imatinib. And that moment we knew that we had we had a major story. You know this was the the mechanism of resistance to Eresa. And then it turned out to be the most dominant, most frequent resistance mechanism to a variety of first and second generation EGFR TKIs. Re-engineered it in the lab, so we could actually show that it led to resistance. And you know, I was thinking about how to publish it very quickly. But as an oncologist, you and me, we hate to give bad news, right? So I wanted to give good news. I didn't want to publish a paper saying, "Oh, resistance develops. There's nothing to do about it." So we decided to screen some compounds to see if we can discover compounds that can overcome this resistance. And we had no money, you know, very little funding. We just opened, uh, you know, Calbiochem and and ordered every single EGFR TKI that they had available from a budget of less than a thousand dollars. And lo and behold, one of them actually was able to overcome resistance to this um, to uh, EGFR. TKIs. And this particular agent turned out to be an irreversible inhibitor. And suddenly that discovery opened up a new avenue of research, ultimately years and years later on, uh, leading to um, the discovery of third-generation agents, such as the T7-910 targeting osimertinib. So, you know, this, this was a very neat story, ultimately making it to the New England Journal of Medicine. And, you know, I just learned this year that it turned out to be one of the most cited papers in the New England Journal of Medicine, and is now listed in Nature as one of the milestones in 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 molecular oncology, which is you know it's it's a nice feeling. So it's nice to look back and be able to feel that you know we were able to participate in a, in a significant moment in terms of uh, molecular discoveries.
0: You know about that story. I think what it really sticks to me is that you observe in our patients, and I, I think you know listening and just thinking about how our patients are doing we always be the way in which discoveries happen. I think following that patient in your clinic and be able to, you know, question and why is this happening and how is this happening is, and will continue to be the way in which we advance lung cancer. And most recently you have been working in some translational research around med X and 14, and I know you have been involved with a few of the Pembroke Lusomat related projects. Can you tell us a little bit how, you know, from the EJFR and why you're doing and Met Exxon 14 now?
1: Certainly, certainly. Um, So that EGFR story, you know, I, I continued to work on for a number of years, actually identified a couple of the key pathways that the EGFR, you know, oncogene kind of control, Cyclone D1, BIM, DUSP, with, you know, close colleagues at um, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess, Susumu Kobayashi, Dan Costa. But at one point, I kind of realized that there's so many labs working on this, that my little team is just just really not, not able to compete on a certain level. Uh, with the great excitement around EGFR, so really, you know, was looking for a new project. Uh, working at that time at Columbia Presbyterian, you know, found a fantastic pathologist Alan Borzak, who, who I still uh, work with, and we decided to take a completely different approach. approach take a very unique subtype of lung cancer called pul- called pulmonary sarcomatoid carcinoma, really just one percent or so of all the patients. And at that time that we started working on this, there was nothing known about this disease, except that it is the most aggressive subtype of lung cancer, highly resistant to chemo, radiation, et cetera. So we decided to take a kind of an agnostic approach uh, to make uh, some discoveries about this particular type of lung cancer. And basically by that time, NGS was available. So we did next-gen sequencing on a certain number of samples. I spent about nine months afterwards digging through the information, totally confused with all the mutations that we were seeing, but no no pattern emerged. And I remember I was looking at this in my office, one after the other, and then suddenly I was like looking at this MET mutation, which really didn't make any sense in a couple of different samples. These mutations occurred not in the coding sequence, but in kind of uh, the the splice site of MET. And suddenly said, Well, did I see something like this before? And <laughs> I realized that about 10 years beforehand, somebody published this, Patrick Mind, Ravi Sagio's group, uh, as a recurrent mutational event in lung cancers. But somehow, you know, the relevance of the mutation was actually not recognized. So then, you know, we said, Okay, you know, what, what, is, what is behind this mutation? It turns out that it leads to an entire skipping of exome 14 of MET. And this particular exon includes a tyrosine kinase, which is critical for the degradation of MET. So in the absence of this tyrosine, simply you have an overactive pathway as a result. And we thought, well, maybe that could make these uh, patients sensitive to uh, MET TKI. So starting testing it in the lab, and indeed, you know, we were able to show that when a tumor carries a MET exon 14 abnormality, they will respond. But we didn't have a patient story I was thinking about how to publish it when I got a call from one of my senior colleagues saying that, oh, we just got a foundation of a report back on a patient of mine who's really not doing well. Can you just look at this? And that particular patient had the exact same methexan-14 skipping mutation. And I said to my colleague, well, you know, chrysotinib is available, you know, for different reasons, but, you know, maybe the insurance company would be willing to let you try it. And uh, this patient was able to, you know, receive chrysotinib. really a last line of treatment. The, the patient was ready to go to hospice, basically. And my colleague uh, was amazed to learn that six hours after the first dose of chrysotinib, the patient's tremendous abdominal pain resolved, uh, and the patient had a tremendous remission. Just tying the story again together from a basic discovery in the lab on a particular type of lung cancer to being, to being able to provide a treatment to a patient uh, with MET targeting. As we published it, though, um, you know, it turned out that we weren't the first to discover this. Actually, you know, review, process did, <laughs> review processes take many months, and as our paper was in review, beautiful papers from Foundation One and the Sloan Kettering team uh, discovered the same uh, in you know, significant cohorts of patients. So. Again, a very, very nice kind of you know, bench uh, to bedside discovery in a way that I was you know, lucky to be involved with. And you know, we're still working on it. As I mentioned, we just submitted a, a paper on this very specific story, trying to understand the biology uh, better. And, you know, as, as these discoveries are being made as a clinician, you couldn't bypass immunotherapy. The immunotherapy discoveries came out of the blue, but made maybe an even more transformational change in the landscape of lung cancer management. And as a clinician, you know, I, I had to make sure that we have these clinical studies available. So I recruited, you know, every single keynote study I could. I was a you know, local PI of Keynote 10 and then Keynote 189 and 407 and 604. To the point that our, you know, scientific liaison called me Dr. Kichuda at one point. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just just hard work in a way ultimately, you know, pays dividends. You know, I was able to, uh, you know, get on some of those papers, but through that, you know, work with the great, you know, Merck team, as well as great clinicians elsewhere, you know, such as Hasburg-Eyesh, and we've had a a bunch of nice papers and nice public uh, presentations now, focusing on looking back at the whole you know, keynote experience, looking at TPS core correlations, TMB correlations. And more recently, I had a chance to work with the Merck in-house team on some novel um, you know, ways of looking at cross-trial you know, comparisons to what's called the match-adjusted indirect comparison. And, you know, one of these examples was recently published and two of them hopefully will come out soon. Looking at the cross, you know, different studies comparing the keynote experience with you know, experiences with nivolumab and atezolizumab and other sets of clinical studies, and I think that just shows you that you know sometimes you know uh, you know you can get you can get support you know outside of your institution to be able to participate in really interesting collaborations that can that can make significant impacts in the field.
0: I, I think collaboration is essential, crucial for continue to advance the care or patients with lung cancer, and I really like the whole Dr. K. Truda, we may have to make you a t-shirt and a coffee mug with that now, plus minus, right, the copyrights from the company. But no conversation during the pandemic would be complete without talking about COVID-19. And I really would like to hear about how do you have been involved creating, you know, research and studies about COVID, particularly with our patients with cancer?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, when I came to the United States from from Budapest, Hungary 25 years ago, I, I stepped into the middle of the HIV epidemic in New York City. And I remember I was a hapless intern. I stuck myself. You know, I, I I was just witnessing patients, you know, dying left and right. And, you know, fast forward forward to this March, you know, March one, you know, we got the first, you know, COVID-19 patient diagnosed in New York City. And then that that was a massive wave of COVID-19 cases, basically just just overwhelming our institutions in, in New York. And I was like, you know, actively thinking about this, that this is not going to be an epidemic that that I don't participate in in an active way. You know, I'm a researcher, you know, we have many patients here. I I need to help the field in a way to move forward. And with a couple of great colleagues here at Montefiore, we basically the first couple of weeks of the COVID experience just collected every single you know, cancer case in the in the institution and dug through chart by chart to make sure that we learn how our cancer patients will react to this, to this new virus. And thereby, we're able to publish the first U.S. cohort experience uh, back in April, basically demonstrating what what's known now as, as, as the real uh, key factors as to the outcome in cancer patients, and that is related to age and performance status and comorbidities. And in a way, it, 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 it was reassuring information as well that a healthy, robust, younger, you know, cancer patient might not have that much, you know, morbidity and mortality from from COVID. We also introduced a lot of different efforts in the institution to make sure, to, you know, that we protect. Yeah, our cancer patients are best, develop what's called the PP paradigm here, prevent, protect, enable, to make sure that if, if we can you know, prevent exposure, you know, we do that through telemedicine, et cetera, et cetera protect patients through introducing the right you know, PPE in clinical practices, removing COVID positive patients from COVID negative, but also even more importantly, enable cancer care even in the middle of the pandemic. And I think we've done a pretty good job as an institution. And then, you know, we went on to join all these excellent global efforts. You know, some of them originated actually on Twitter, such as CCC19 and TerraVault. And just the last couple of weeks, we decided to look at a different experience with COVID. And that is looking at the survivors, the cancer patients who survived COVID. How did they react in terms of zero conversion? And we have a preprint now, and hopefully we'll be out in publication very soon, which I think is very reassuring from a certain angle. Most solid tumor patients develop antibodies just fine, actually 100% on immunotherapy, and that is matching in a way the general population of patients without cancer where seroconversion is, is in the 90 to 100% range. But what we also find is that certain types of patients, very logically, Post BMT after rituximab, CAR T cell therapy have much lower um, serial conversion rates. And this is now a warning signal in a a way, you know, when it comes to vaccinations, that those patients who might need to monitor more carefully in terms of serial conversion, maybe they'll need different vaccination regimens, different ways of protecting them through this pandemic. So, you know, in a way, I was, I was very fortunate to be able to contribute to these, to these experiences.
0: And as an oncologist living in the Midwest, you know, our, our peak came after. So many of us over here, right in the middle of the country, are very thankful to our colleagues in New York. We learned tons from the New York experience and allow us to do our best to, you know, with the current situation. So I wanted to know that all those efforts and writing and publishing that paper in April, I remember I was pulled to cover extra time in the hospital and finding the paper. And I was like, okay. At least there's some guidance, because for a moment, we, uh, it felt like we were running, but we didn't know where we we're going.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, it, it felt like we we're sinking. But, you know, um, we, 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 need to, we need to learn from that ex- experience in the first place. And then we've recovered and we're managing. And now we all need to come together to make sure that our cancer patients get vaccinated. As you know, this is the biggest story now that there's no national effort yet as to our cancer patients getting uh, to the front of the line. It truly bothers me and I'm sure it bothers you as well, because right now, you know, this, this is really just, just very florid cr- across the country and receiving cancer care for cancer patients in the middle of this pandemic, I mean, how stressful does that uh, have to be? You know, The risk, potential morbidity, mortality, you know, the, the last opportunities uh, not to be willing to go to the emergency room for an evaluation, et cetera. So we need to do a better job as an oncology community to be proactive about getting our patients to the front of the line.
0: And we may be running out of time, but I want to attach to that comment because our patients, unfortunately, many of them have limited time with us. And I continue to advocate for them to get their vaccine so they can have some of that time outside of their house. I think for many of them, it has to be very hard knowing that they have a fatal disease. You know, they have, I have patients that have these large plants and I'm afraid that they they may not be able to make them true if we don't see any anything moving forward in the next few months for them.
1: Absolutely just heartbreaking to think about, you know, the fear, you know, in terms of a patient needing to be admitted, you know, cancer and COVID, they might never see their family again. Nobody can visit patients in the hospital, the social isolation. So, you know, we need to do our best, you know, to make sure that, you know, we provide the right care and that includes vaccination. Plus, you know, we we, we are the compassionate advocates for them uh, in the community, but also in person uh, at the bedside.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We also on a lighter note, because I cannot let you go before we talk a little bit about your interactions and social media. And I have to say, I remember one day having a difficult day in clinic. I specialize in younger women with lung cancer and some days can be challenging. And I remember just going um, on social media and you were raiding somebody's plate of food. And that just made me laugh for the first time in like 12 hours. And I was like, thank God for Balash!" So then at least my day doesn't end with me crying on my way home. So I, I just want to know... How did you start it? And um, just also your handle is Dr. Stephen Martin, which I loved. So what is the story behind your handle? And how did you stay so positive in social media?
1: Well, I'm, I'm so glad. We, we all cheer each other up. And right? first of all, Thank, thank you for teaching me some Spanish the last couple of uh, days. Uh, and I know about Venezuelan Ayacas and had uh, to spell uh, feliz año nuevo as well. So, so we will entertain each other, and I love these strong personalities on Twitter. But uh, my Twitter handle. The story goes back to the fact that as I was, you know, growing up as a teenager, young adult, I, I looked like somebody, you know, I looked exactly like Che Guevara uh, with a black beard. Uh, and suddenly, as I as I started graying, uh, for whatever reason, life life shifted me into uh, this Steve Martin um, lookalike to the point that I went through you know JFK you know with one of these you know visa agents not even looking up you know just checking my picture on the computer starting to laugh and you know passing me on that oh you're Steve Martin you can go. Uh, actually, you know, in a restaurant from the next table, paparazzi were taking pictures of, of, <laughs> of me in Chicago one day as well. So it was like becoming such such, such a ridiculous story that I decided, you know what, I need to own this on a certain level. So as you know, so I joined Twitter, I said, nobody would remember, you know, the name Balash Hamus, but who wouldn't remember Dr. Steve Martin. So, you know, that, that that's how it came about. And it's been kind of uh, entertaining in a way. And... I love Twitter, uh, you know, ever since I joined, you know, just the speed and quality of information that we gain and kind of a sense of community through pandemic times and just a lot of entertainment, uh, as, as you just mentioned, you know, with really just the great thoracic personalities out there, Nate Pennell and Jack West and you, you so I love it. I love it. It's great um, education, mentoring and, and community. So I'm very grateful to, to be a part of that community.
0: And just that last comment about the social media part, I think when you were trying to discover, so Dr. Halmos was trying to discover what kind of Latin food he got from a patient. There was an entire community of oncologists, different types, all of them involved, trying to figure out by pictures, New Year's Eve, what kind of food it was. And it was just for me, it was a second, like, we're all committed to figure it out if it is a these are tamales, ajacas pasteles, what are they?
1: Yeah, I love, it. I love that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it was just, we are wrapping up. We'd like to thank Balash for your time, your insights. Thank you to the audience for listening. An honor to be one of your hosts for Lung Cancer Concierge. We have episodes the first and the third Monday of every month. So you can listen to us when you're in the train, when you're driving, when you are snowshoeing, and things that people do in the winter. So don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave your feedback. Thank you so much, Balash, for your time.
1: Sure, uh, I know that you're snowshoeing better now than a couple of years ago. Enjoying enjoying those Wisconsin winters? Uh...
0: Well, this is my fifth <laughs> Midwest winter. I think uh, I have every piece of equipment that's required. I still don't go outside, but I have it. So that's we should be <laughs>
1: So thank you so much for the invite. This this was a lot of fun, so thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.